0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Study in the Minor Prophets. I'm Abraham Lee, your BSF teaching leader for the San Francisco region. And today, we're turning to the final days leading up to Judah's Babylonian captivity. And it's a very, very uh, interesting read. I mean, it's just full of uh, excitement, drama, miraculous escapes, uh, provision of deliverance, and then just kings continuing their idolatrous mayhem, the cycle of defiance, disobedience, idolatry, pagan worship following, and then uh, one or two few kings coming along and restoring and putting back the uh, covenant in its rightful place in the people's eyes, and then uh, just the nation falling apart again, even after a good king. So we're going through these cycles, and I'm sure at times you throw your hands up and wonder, what is all of this supposed to mean for me? And how do I make sense of all of this? Well, if you're having those thoughts, you are not alone. Uh, we have all kind of struggled through that and wonder what is going on with the kings. And that's what I want to start us off with. Um, I felt just as you did, if that was your line of thinking. You know, the Lord does uh, judge and he has to because he's a just God. And I just want to let you know that um, when we read Second Kings 24, 4, Let me go back and read uh, verse 3 instead. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all that he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. So remember that Manasseh, God had mercy on him when he was taken captive and uh, he was brought back by God's grace and was... um, able to live out the remaining days uh fairly well because he had repented uh, re- and expressed great remorse and um, that's found in 2 Kings as well but um here we're saying we're finding that God was not willing to forgive and put or reinstall Judah into a position where they might be a nation of priests unto the nations around them So let's take a look at that first. You know, there was, first of all, a definitive prophecy, a word of the Lord, which said Judah would be taken captive. And that was repeated many, many times. And we saw that several times in Hosea, Amos, Joel, Obadiah. And you might also say Jonah foreshadowed it as well of God's judgment, uh, which accounts for part of his uh, sour mood. You know, Jonah was very, very sour about trying to witness to the Ninevites. And we are reminded that Josiah knew about it as well, and it would happen after his lifetime. So this was in the works. Number two, God's buildup of empires for judgment was already set in motion long beforehand. It was only a matter of time. Nineveh's repentance, we know, was short-lived. When Israel in the northern kingdom fell... The small Judah nation was surrounded by pagan nations. Hezekiah set reforms too, but he wavered in the end, as you recall. And and Josiah himself, although he set us uh, about a series of important spiritual reforms, he passed away at 39 years old in order for judgment to uh, commence. Would he have remained faithful? We don't know uh, because we, we also do see that faithful kings do kind of uh, retrench back into uh very very bad ways of the nations around them and compromise you know only god knows that but number three i want to emphasize also that even we read mostly of the kings here we shouldn't lose focus on the important spiritual institutions that are falling apart as well alongside the wayward kings and i'm speaking of the temple priests and the levites Uh, they were constantly under compromise and challenge And they never really exercised spiritual leadership, nor rolled out a compelling form of spiritual education, a system of learning into the things of God in a thoughtful, uh, complex, and sophisticated way. And therefore, the lay people were always going after pagan worship. They kept on and on through the uh, generations, setting up asherah poles and worshiping at high places. So you know, it ends up that backsliding was the only consistent thing about them. The temple was in such disrepair, deep disrepair, the priests didn't even know that they had God's word, and it wasn't until they did major house cleaning that they found it. Their religion was cold and ritualistic. Nobody read or studied God's word as was commanded when the kingship was first instituted. Remember, the people were—they uh, didn't read Moses' command as they were supposed to. They were told to tie them, for instance, about their heads and write them on their do- doorposts practices, uh, emblematic of the people who always kept God's word before their eyes. So Moses instructions went on to say, think about them when you are rising up in the morning and settling down for the day at night. And that's what God told them to do. Well, they didn't do this. Number four, did the nation's insistence on having a king like the nations around them work out? Well, no, it didn't. It was an abject failure we went through so many variations and cycles of kings already to see that one good king out of so many bad or average ones wasn't going to take the kingdom where they needed to be where they needed to be sinful human leadership wasn't going to take them where they needed to go but god does not recant his promise that a perfect king by david's seed would reign on the throne of his kingdom forever number 5 was everything wasted then Are the stories of the kings and their rulership over Israel and Judah, was this all a waste, a waste of time? No, nothing is wasted for God. Because we realize that through these stories and through their works and through their leadership, we realize salvation only comes from the Lord. It only comes from the Lord. Salvation wasn't going to happen through even the best human king. We had to see that for ourselves. We had to grow and understand that realization Furthermore, we know that Judah's diaspora laid the groundwork for global witness of God throughout the world that they failed to do from their homeland, which we get a sense of later on in the books of Daniel when we learn about Daniel and his godly friends and even Esther. The diaspora witness that grows out of the wayward people here goes on in the pagan nations around them through Assyria and Babylon they end up becoming the witness into the nations. so powerful. Chronicles tells us that eventually a pagan king by the name of Cyrus of Persia comes declaring God's directive to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem. That's chapter 36, 20, verse 23. Now, how does Cyrus, a pagan, declare such a thing for Israel if not through a confluence of influences through God's remnant, through God's people dispersed throughout the land? And we can't even begin to understand how it might have affected nations upon nations, having a rippling effect uh, going out into Asia and Europe and Africa. Some of this effect goes on to influence the wise men to come and seek out that savior king who is eventually born in Bethlehem. We know that this influence and impact is far reaching and we'll only know in heaven. But, you know, all of this is gives us hope and reminds me of that song that says, Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. God is always at work. God is always at work, even if we don't completely or fully understand. And that gives us great cause for rejoicing, that He will accomplish all that He said He will in His covenant. So I just want to also move on to uh, this slide first. You know, I, These days, I've been kind of uh, going through some keywords and ideas that are essential to park our thoughts on, to kind of weigh in our hands a bit, to, to really wrestle with a little bit deeper than we tend to. And so um, let me start with put my name on it forever. You know, the name of God is essential to understanding who he is. It says in the scriptures that uh, when we believe in the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And uh, a lot of us kind of skim over that. But it's significant to understand that when we say we believe in the name of the Lord or he's going to put his name on a thing forever, like the temple and Jerusalem, his name will be on them forever forever. What it's essentially getting at is that we we don't just believe the name in a superficial way. That name has a story behind it, attributes that was clearly revealed and communicated to all mankind. So when we say that we believe in the name of the Lord, or I come in the name of the Lord, that means that he's coming in all the things that he had revealed about himself in the past, and he will achieve and bring it to fruition in the future. So God transcends time, but he's communicating to us in parts and pieces, everything that is essential and at the heart of who He is. And that's the privilege that we walk into, and that is at the basis of our salvation. At the basis of everything that He's told about His name is that He's a Savior and He's a deliverer. He's a deliverer from our sins, which started in Genesis. He's a deliverer and He's a rescuer, but He's also a shepherd. He's a shepherd of our souls. And so all of these attributes wrapped up in His name is what we place our faith in. So there is a very big difference between uh, saying that I believe in the nominal name of Jesus, Jesus as just a name that's a, a word, versus the qualitative nature of about what that name refers back to, biblically, scripturally. The Jews would call that the Tanakh, all the ways in which God had expressed His desire and His intention and purposes for us. Remember that the Tanakh is an acronym, right? They represent the first letter of the three parts of the Scripture. Tana, ta, representing the Torah. Na, uh, representing the Navim, which is which are the books of the prophets. And Ketavim, which are the, the poetry works. And so they all embody the covenantal promises and the nature and the attributes of God. Uh, and all that he has uh, in mind for us in uh, history and beyond. So... Going on also, the second line, it says he began to seek the God of his father, David. And this is why understanding that name is so critical. David's name and the deliverance of all humanity is wrapped up in the name of God as revealed through the covenant. Passover observance is also essential in that covenant. Passover, as you know, is a picture. It's one of the earliest and most complete pictures of our deliverance lived out by the Hebrews when they were being delivered from Egypt and so that is a picture of our own deliverance from the world, a world of sin and of despair and of um, damnation. And so when we are partaking of the lamb, which is unblemished, a lamb that is clean and without blemish, uh, with no bones broken, but which is roasted in fire and eaten, taken and imbibed in all of us for our salvation is a symbol of Christ, and that blood of the lamb was taken and wiped along the doorpost, the doorpost of the door which comes together in the symbol of the cross. The meal inside was eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, representing our humility and the ways in which we mourn with the Lord for his great sacrifice and the cost that he bore for our deliverance. So there are many, many aspects of the Passover that plays significantly into relaying to us a deeper understanding of God's great salvation. Josiah, so he reads from the book of the covenant and he realizes something that startles him. All this time, he had been thinking he needed to be pious in the way in which he thought was best. But after he read the Book of the Covenant, he realized in more concrete terms how far they had as a nation deviated from the will and purposes of God. And that was confirmed by, um, very interestingly, a woman prophet, a prophetess named Huldah, who prophesied about judgment but also about mercy. And then we also hear again about a measuring line in Second Kings twenty one, which is also referring back to that plumb line that we had heard about, read and studied in Amos. The plumb line, which becomes the symbol of the standard by which God's people will be judged, even by pagan nations who didn't even know better by standards in which they intuited of what was right and wrong. By them, they were going to God was going to use pagan nations to bring the. Um, Bring the nation of uh, judah and israel back in line with his will and so and then there was also the desecration uh the burning of the prophets and all of the uh, pagan and instruments and artifacts that were brought into the temple and strewn throughout the streets uh guiding people into false worship Brought into place by evil kings. These were all burned and thrown into Kidron Valley And as you if you might remember the Kidron Valley is on the east side of the city and it was kind of uh, the garbage dump a place where refuge and death reigned and uh, Kidron Valley later on in scriptures is also symbolized as a kind of Hades uh, a place of uh, unquenchable fire Next is uh, not the phrase, not since the days of the judges nor the kings, um, and that's in reference to the greatness of Josiah's Passover when they are coming back to observe and to make sacrifices, observe the sacred uh, Levitical duties again in the temple after they've cleansed it and purified it. And this idea that, you know, when we are coming back into understanding what God uh, is trying to bring our minds to, that we look... Uh, unobstructed we are, have an unobstructed view a clear l- line of sight so to speak a clear line of sight to the things of god because we have done the duty of cleansing and purifying our lives from the garbage and the idols and the and the trash that we carry around with us so much so that sometimes our hands are so full of these things we have no space left in them to hold on to the sacred things and then the hill of corruption built by Solomon. You know, even Solomon as wise as he was, as magnificent as his dynasty was, how he himself had set up a whole hillside full of Asherahs lured into this error by uh, the people around him, the people that his heart's affections were drawn after. But you know, we read what happens with Josiah and his reforms, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough, and it was never gonna get good enough. Well, uh, you might have been frustrated by that, but what is the intention of God then? What does God want for us? Well, he didn't want the faith and religion uh, that the people believed and lived into to be this cold mechanical thing. Godliness was supposed to be, and I tell my students, for lack of a better word, godliness and spiritual life in God was supposed to kind of grow and flourish, kind of like a pianist who's playing scales and later on goes on to play jazz. There is a higher way of living into the things of God. Uh, Our expectations are quite low, and we underestimate what God is trying to do when He's taking us through His program, through His curriculum, through His training. God is trying to teach us into that which often we resist and hold very low because we just don't understand And that which we don't understand, we don't know what we're missing. We don't know what we're missing. You know, there's a. I, I went to piano school early in my youth, and you know, there's a drudgery of playing scales over and over again. You know, having those fingers go across and play those patterns, boring stuff. Or it's kind of like Daniel in The Karate Kid. I don't know if you've watched that karate kid. Mr. Miyagi, a Japanese neighbor, wants to teach him how to, because he want, he's begging to be taught how to fight the bullies in his neighborhood using karate. And um, (laughs) Daniel is taught to do some chores and Mr. Miyagi has him paint the fence and scrub the floors uh, using specific moves, kind of wiping on, wiping off, a routine that gets repetitive. But he does this the entire day, completely exhausted. But He thinks in his mind, and within the context, he feels this is a pointless chore that has nothing to do with his main problem, to learn karate. What Mr. Miyagi saw, however, was his lack of self-discipline and self-control. When we realized later on that these practices and routines all kind of built up, the laws and, and the commands that Mr. Miyagi had for Daniel all kind of worked together to develop kind of a intuitive skill and understanding that he lacked. You know, we read the Old Testament and the words of God this way. We read the laws and regulations, and they also feel like a very long list of precepts and commands and routines that we don't fully understand. But we know sometimes they do come off as being boring, as being regimented. And they, but they are the design, elements of a far higher spiritual training that reflects the perfect ways of God's heart, God's kingdom, his love for justice, righteousness, goodness, beauty, patience, endurance, peace, and grace—these are all taught by His law. Those of us who have grown up in the church may, you know, live into the Ten Commandments in a cold, mechanical, detached way, uh, and then others will say that we're, you know, religious fuddy-duddies. But that is exactly what Jesus is railing against—that kind of me- mechanism, that kind of mechanical, robotic way of living in the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the institutions that ruled over the lives of the Jews. They were religious, but without understanding. God has a far greater intention and aim in mind for the collective nature of his instruction to us to contribute to our learning about the enormous wonder of God's heart and the ways in which we'll be using the things that he's teaching us into the generations and kingdom of his future to come. People say that the human brain is possibly the most amazing miracle, the most amazing complex thing in the universe. Scientists still haven't figured out how even a fraction of 1% of our brains work. It's a mystery, with very few entry points into delving into understanding its makeup. But there is something more amazing than our brains that we can explore right before us today. There is the enormous invitation into the heart and the mind of God Himself, more profound than our brains. He invites us to, in a kind of spiritual journey, to understand His mind and His heart and to embrace and to understand what He's calling us to do in Jesus, to be in Jesus. So what happens when we stick with the Word of God in the Bible and engage in discussions and studies like we do in BSF? Well, something wonderful starts to unfold, kind of like Daniel-san here, who's trying to pick up karate. um, Something transformative happens. Who would have thought that doing menial work or practicing into the spiritual disciplines would lead to something so unexpected, so profoundly life-changing? he suddenly realizes that the practice of obedience leads to a wisdom in that relationship that took his karate abilities to a higher level. In the field of music, I liken it to jazz again. It's like when you spend so many hours with the piano, playing the keys and doing the scales and exploring the chords and the harmonics and the different possible ways in which you can play something, you can one day, without cold calculated thinking, You come to a way in which you beautifully improvise and make music spontaneously and extemporaneously and joyfully exercise a deeper skill, a more sophisticated encounter with the art. That is what God wants us to be doing with our spiritual relationships with one another and most importantly with Him. That it should not be a cold and mechanical thing that we see the kings and the the Israelites do nor the detached and obligated thing that the modern church does, but to imbibe into the richness of God everything that God has given to us so that we can go out and practice an exuberance of the beauty and goodness of his ways into all facets of life we live in. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for his good work, It's easy to breeze over this word and think merely of good works, but that's not it at all. Paul uses a word for workmanship that's really interesting. It's called poema, the word from which we get the word poem. Poema used to signify a created product or item designed by an artisan of great skill. And like a poem, it is a carefully designed expression of his construction and his design, his his design plan. We are image bearers of the artisan of God, the beauty and the good wisdom of God, God's poem in the world, in all creation. And he has called us in and through Jesus and through Jesus' saving and redemptive power to be creating and unleashing strains of his enormous, powerful beautiful poetry into the world as living sacrifices holy and acceptable unto god in jesus that's a great blessing and it's a huge calling we're living into day by day so the principle for us to reflect on here is that god disciplines us to his best and cleansing us always of our errors god disciplines us toward his best and for cleansing us of our errors The application for us to think about is, how have you been thinking about your faith in an indeterminate way, as if it wasn't going anywhere or wasn't supposed to go any farther than what you thought or saw? And how has that made you lazy about your spiritual disciplines? Uh, This happens to all of us. We underestimate where God is taking us and what the instruction He has for us holds out for us. Some people look at the stars and the universe and the broad infinite expanse of it the the distance of it all and um they posit maybe there's life in other planets but for me recently i've come to see that god has made the universe so large and so expansive to give us a sense of how deep and how broad the things that he has in mind for us into the future is really like it's far far greater than we can hold in our minds and it's far greater than we can by our own means reach into, we have to do it His way in order to breach the distance. Space and the universe is just merely a picture of the enormity of God and the inheritance of the future that God has in store for those who love Him and are willing to undergo His preparation. And that must be done His way by His Son. And that's the only way that we can breach the distance. So King Josiah did a remarkable thing in trying to bring the nation back to an understanding of God's heart. There's a point in which he's burning and, and cleansing and burning down the Asherah poles and the carved idols and cast images. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 34 uh, verse 3 and 7. There's mention of uh, him also burning the pagan priests on those altars. And this is a reference that we might quickly overlook. And But it is useful to go back to 1 Kings chapter 13. And so this is uh, in the account of Jeroboam when he's reigning in Israel. And he's instit- instituting all these idols. And he's actually defacing the place of worship in Bethel and Dan, uh, sacrificing to calves. And by the word of the Lord, a man of God comes into the scene in verse 1. He came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. This man of God, he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. And he says, O oh, altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son, named, a son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places, who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar of Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him, but the hand he stretched out, toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. So you probably remember that remarkable scene. But now that prophecy by that man of God, whose name we do not know, is being fulfilled. Not only is it being fulfilled, when Josiah comes across the burial plot of this man of God, he honors this man. So in 2 Kings chapter 23, the king asks, What is that tombstone I see? And the men of the city say, said, It marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against the altar of Bethel the very things you have done to it. Leave it alone, he said, and don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they spared his bones and those of the prophet who had come from Samaria. So very interesting how God's word is fulfilled. God's word always comes to pass. There is a verse in uh, 2 Peter 3, 8, uh, which is often misused and abused uh, for various different arguments, especially about uh, the age of the earth, but it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the judgment of God and that whatever God has decreed will come to pass. It will take place. It will be accomplished. Let me just quickly read it. read it for you. Starting with verse 7, and by that same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 8 Beloved, do not let this one thing escape your notice. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That was Second Peter 3, verse 8. So when Josiah, King Josiah came across the words of the Lord, his response is quite interesting. He went into a kind of spiritual panic. He realized how compromised the nation in their divided and polluted worship was. He tore his robes, it says, the robes which he wore, the robes which are kind of the stories of our lives the stories that we want to believe in about ourselves we're masquerading in costumes but when josiah tears his robes he feels the grief of their departure from god their disobedience the way recklessly they've lived against and defied the ways of the lord and that grief and that sorrow and also uh, the the sense of urgency distresses him so that even The costumes of his kingship are of no consequence, and he feels utterly helpless and miserable to handle how to get back to God, which is their needful next step. So he sent his emissaries along with uh, priest Hilkiah to God's prophet Huldah to inquire the Lord what's to be done, as it's written in his book. And when he heard the the devastating judgment on all Judah and Jerusalem, instead of Instead of Gwana dwelling on the fact that it was too late and there was nothing that could be done about God's judgment, uh, you and I probably thought, well, it's not worth doing anything about it. Anyway, Josiah instead, which speaks really well of his character, he goes to calling all the elders of the land together from the least to the greatest, priests and the Levites together for the reading of the book and a reminder of God's covenant. They renewed their covenant vows to follow the decrees with all their heart and soul and to obey the words of the covenant. He had done everything to pledge them to the covenant of God and the God of their fathers. And so this was a man who did not trivialize sin. You know, we, sometimes our fault is, comes from the fact that we live in very secure, very well-to-do modern lives so that we kind of trivialize What sin is about, because we have not seen the full extent of where sin can rightly go to the to the darkness and to the evil that it is. And it has it just keeps going darker and darker and darker. We make sin so small as to make the anger and displeasure of God by comparison seem irrational and emotional, capricious and outrageous. Because we make so light of sin, God lets us see what sin can do And that is part of the reason why we have the story of the kings and the stories that we hear all around us in our society. Just when we think it couldn't get worse, it really does. And sin can go farther down that road than we can ever think. We think of ourselves as, you know, in our culture, very tolerant and even keeled, balanced and clear thinking, when in fact, we're really complacent, lazy, self-righteous, and ignorantly foolish of what sin in its power can do. But God knows how serious sin and rebellion can be. Without knowing how dangerous sin is, as it eats away at and tears down every good thing in God, in its depravity and darkness, the vile and cruel ways it rebuts against God, fights against God, You know, we could not fully understand, without understanding how grave sin is, how great the heart of God is, How great the love of God is when you start walking with the Lord you'll start seeing good where you didn't see good in your life before and you start seeing evil where you didn't see evil before but because you can see properly now you're able to have a deeper and richer understanding and be able to bless where before you were walking in worry and trepidation and fear you're walking away from people suspicious of people and God Walking with God leads to greater intimacy with God that grows us up and matures us spiritually and enlarges our capacity for being a force for His good as the men and women He created us to be. And at the same time, you know, well, you'll know, experience and I experience a contentment, and inner peace you had never known before. Why? Well, there's an awesome sense of security over our lives that can never be taken away from us by other people or circumstances, knowing that we are living in His will and in His love. And that in turn gives us a sense of confidence to face those difficult times in life that before were extremely difficult for us to handle and deal with. But before we can do this, we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's what it's about. And that opens the door for us to have a relationship with God. Jesus opens the relationship, makes a way for us to have a relationship with God. And that's what King Josiah, you know, among all the admirable things he did, that's what he really cared about, to restore that relationship with God. You know, I show you this map of the Assyrian Empire, and the next slide is one of the Neo Babylonian Empire. And It's reminded me of a story when they were dispersed into the nations. Um, One of the graduation days I had, we had uh, a father of a Vietnamese student come and celebrate his graduation with him. And he just, we were talking and he said, I can't believe how fast he grew. He was just a little boy and we used to walk down the canal on his way to school and he would hold my hand. And oftentimes he would let go of my hand, he would run to the canal and chase after butterflies and birds and I tell him to stay close by but he would always flit off but then we come to a dark tunnel and this dark tunnel was super dark and as soon as we entered this tunnel to get to the other side to get to school my son who was so busy chasing after little birds and and butterflies came running back and he held my hand and he held my hand and he said dad, do you have me? Do you have me? Do you have my hand? And I said, I got you. And then he would say, hold me tighter. Hold my hand tighter. Do you have me? And he said, I've got you. Nothing's going to happen to you. And they walked through the darkness together. But as soon as they came out the other side, guess what? (laughs) That little boy ran off after birds and butterflies again, and he wouldn't come back even with, you know, the father running after him. And that father confided in me that after raising his son, he, he understood much better what God was doing in Scripture and also in his own life. That sometimes we have it so easy and we so easily misunderstand and underestimate the love of God. But sometimes it takes the dark places and circumstances of our lives for us to run back to him and understand how much he does really care and how much he is abiding with us and leading us through our most troubling times. So the doctrine for this week, just wanted to remind you all, is about God's righteousness. His righteousness embodies his goodness and his patience. That's his attribute that he's patient with us, even as we flit and float and wander and drift. The big idea to take away is God's right ways versus sin's path of destruction. And the principles that we learn through this uh, chapter or this lesson is that God will not spare us necessary pain that will draw us to himself. And only God is worthy of our worship. God is only worthy of our worship. Idols obstruct our view. Distractions cloud and blind us from the main things the most worthy things that deserve our full undivided attention, and that God can be trusted even when His people fail. You know, even as His people fail, God's plans do not depend on man. He knows we are frail and weak to accomplish any good work apart from Him, but He nonetheless involves us because by coming alongside Him, we learn about Him, the wonder of Him, and rejoice and celebrate together over His love. Proverbs tell us, man makes plans, but God directs our steps. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we worship you, Lord, that you do not give up on us. You're like the Father, Lord, who keeps calling us back. Even as we're going through dark times, Lord, we know, Lord, that you have your eyes set on us, and you're watching over us, and that you will make all things work out for good to those who love you. So sustain us, Father. We rejoice in you, and we, we praise you, Lord, for the greatness of your great salvation through Jesus and the future that you have prepared for us in our Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.